You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, I became a Christian uh, at about 15 years old. A friend of mine in high school shared the gospel with me, and it was just a kind of a whole new world. I didn't grow up in the church, and so God was blowing my mind. He brought me to his church, his new church. I just didn't know the anything, and it was a really... Uh, wonderful time for me, a really uh, forming time for me. And when I think back to that time, there's uh, one moment in particular that, that had a really forming effect on me as a young Christian. It began with a, uh, with a challenge that my youth pastor, Brent, Ben, uh, brought to me uh, back then. So again, I'm, I'm brand new Christian. I'm kind of just figuring out how to do things, learning the ropes about what, what it means to know God and walk with Him and, and, and grow in Christ. And one day, Ben looks at me and he says, uh, hey, uh, this week I want to give you a challenge. I want you to meet with God in a graveyard. Which is a weird thing to say to a 15-year-old. Um, you know, I was like, okay, is there better seating than Starbucks? Like, why am I, why am I going there uh, to do that. I, di- I didn't get it. And he looks at me and he says, no, it's because if you really want to gain perspective that will help you navigate life, you need to stare into the face of some sobering realities. And I was 15 and that was literally the deepest thing any human being had said to me at that point, right? Uh, okay, I, it feels weird, but I'm going to do it. And so I did. I grabbed my Bible and my journal and I took off to the nearest graveyard because that's what you do uh, with your Bible and journal. And, and you could catch me periodically uh, throughout my teens posted up in a cemetery, sitting next to a gravestone, reading my Bible. Typically, I would look for one that uh, the, the guy was close to my age, which is a little dark, but go with me. And, and uh, you know, the, the whole thing felt really weird to me at the time, as it probably does to you hearing this right now. Uh, but it was so interesting to, to watch what started to happen in me as I spent time around these gravestones. Something started to change in me. Uh, as I surrounded myself with things that my culture told me uh, to forget about, like disregard, don't spend time thinking about, as I surrounded myself with those types of things, my outlook started to shift. Like my perspective like started to to shift on things, like, like I'm sitting there, and I'm like, why, why am I playing Tony Hawk Pro Skater for like four hours a day? I'm gonna die, right? Like, it it just, it, it flavored the way I thought about life, and interacted with things in, in a way that very few things had done up to that point. It was, it was fascinating, and the place that, that most people least like to go became a training ground for me to equip me with wisdom to navigate life. Do you see that? Now, I I tell you that this morning because that's exactly what we're doing here this morning. This morning, we're going to be meeting with God in a graveyard. We're meeting with God in a graveyard this morning. Uh, Now, what do I mean? Well, we're we're in Psalm 90 uh, this morning, so if you have your Bible, please get it out. We're going to be in the text quite a bit. Um, This is one of the rarest psalms in your Bible because it was written not by David, not by Asaph or any of these guys. It was written by Moses. And if it was written by Moses, this would make this the oldest psalm in the psalms. Maybe one of the oldest poems ever recorded in ancient history. Moses 
uh, here is dealing with some incredibly unpleasant topics, right? Things like death and mortality and the futility of life. He's doing this for a reason, and he gives us his reason right in the middle of the psalm. In, in verse 12, bring your eyes down there and take a look. He says this, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So he gives us a heads up. That's what he's up to here. Moses tells us that the themes in this psalm are an invitation for you and I to gain wisdom. So if you're here this morning and you're hungry for wisdom, you're like, I want to grow in wisdom, you're in a great place. We're in a great psalm for you this morning. And as we work our way through the text, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the reality of our impermanence, the cause of our impermanence, and the cure for our impermanence. The reality, the cause, and the cure. That's where we're going this morning, okay? So let's get into it. Let's, let's deal with the reality of our impermanence from Moses in Psalm 90. Look with me at verse 1 and 2. It says this. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Okay, so, so stop there. Moses starts by establishing for us some facts about the Lord. How should we think about this God of ours? Follow the words with me in, in the text. Dwelling place. Okay, uh, could also be translated as refuge. So think sturdy fortress for the protection of people. So think the word sturdy, right? Uh, in all generations, God outlasts everybody, right? Generations come and they go, and all the while there's still God, and he's still a dwelling place for them as they're coming and going. He outlasts them all, so there's an endurance to him. Think enduring. Right, that phrase, everlasting to everlasting, what's that? Was talking about God's eternality, right? His eternality. God always was, he always is, he always will be, he, he never won't be. He is permanent, fixed, forever and ever, he's eternal. So sturdy, enduring, eternal, what's he establishing here? What he's doing is this. The first thing Moses wants us to know here is that when you think about God, you need to think about him and understand him in terms of his permanence, right? There is a permanence to God, a, a fixedness, a weight, and I'm not going anywhere-ness to God. There's a permanence to him. Now, he says this because he's about to set up a contrast right? If God is those things, then what are we? Well, he goes on in verse 3 to describe the contrast. Verse 3 says this, you return man to dust, and you say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday as it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening, it fades and withers. So again, let's just follow the words here to get a, a flavor, a sense of what Moses wants us to feel about the human experience. Here's just some words we're pulling out of the text. Dust, grass, a dream, fades, withers, 
swept away? These are the words that make up the human experience. What's the point? What's the point? The point is, well, if God is permanent, then what he's wanting to show us is that we're being confronted with the fact that we are deeply, deeply, what? Impermanent. That we, that we are an impermanent people. We don't last, right? We don't, we don't tip the scales. There's not a weight to humanity. We're here today, and we grow up like the grass, and then tomorrow we burn off, and we're gone, and we're done with. Humanity is impermanent. That's what he's saying here. And there's two sides to this impermanence. There's two sides to it. First, there's a shortness to our life. The shortness to our life, isn't it? Look down uh, at verse 10 with me as he's establishing this. He says this, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. So Moses observes, on our best day, on your best day, if your health is impeccable and you don't get hit by a bus next week, right? On your best day, you're making it to 80, right? Maybe some go a little over, maybe some come a little younger, but your best day is 80 years old, 80. That's that's what we have to work with. 80 years is not a long time. I don't know if you feel, if you're, tw- if you're in your 20s, 80 feels like it's far away. But I, I know that any older person in the room can tell you, 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 when you get old, you will blink and you'll be looking at 70 and 80. It just comes, right? It comes, amen, <laughs> yes. It comes quick. You look, you look good. 80 years, y'all. There are turtles that live longer than 80 years, right? We're impermanent. Life is short, but it's not just that life is short. It's that life is hard, right? That's what the text says. Look again at verse 10. The years of our life are 70 or even if by reason of strength, 80, yet their span or like the amount of days that make them up, their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So it's not just that you and I don't last. It's that while we last, it can be really hard. Right? Like, that's true, right? We, that, that resonates with our experience. Life it's just hard sometimes. Deep down, we, we know this in our experience. There's toil and trouble everywhere. It doesn't mean there's not going to be good moments, but it means in the main, our, our life has struggle all through it. There is toil and difficulty. We see this. All the, but there's toil in your work, right? You know what has never happened? You have never mowed your lawn and then not had to mow it again. That's never happened. Wouldn't that be amazing? That's never happened. You've never washed the laundry and then the next day your kids stop stinking, right? And you're like, Billy, these are downy fresh. I don't even need to wash them anymore, right? That doesn't happen, right? It'd be amazing. No, that's not how reality works for us, right? No, what, what the reality we're in is we wake up every morning into like this terrifying Groundhog Day situation where the weeds are back, right? And the grass is back, and the dirt is back, and that, that line in that underwear is back. It's all back. It comes back. There's toil. 
I can't believe I said that. There's toil <laughs> in life. It's hard. There's toil in our work. There's toil in our planning, right? I, I know this. There's some folks in this church who are dealing with this right now. You, you faithfully invest your money in your younger years so that you won't have to work when you get into your old age, and then you finally retire, and what happens? The market crashes, right? And now all of a sudden you find yourself back at the job at 70, 75, 80, just trying to make ends meet, right? There's toil in our planning. Kelly's uh, parents did a complete remodel of their, their downstairs of their house. Really nice house, really expensive remodel, and they lived in Houston, and Hurricane Harvey hit that year. And two feet of water were in their house by the time it was over, right? There's futility in that. There's toil in our planning. There's toil in our health, right? Listen, you can drink as much kombucha as you want. You can eat as little gluten as you want. You can smear your body with essential oils and you will still look like trash one day. You will. It's just the Bible, right? You will. It's just gonna go bad for you no matter what. We still get sick. We still get old. There's still things like cancer. And then you die. And that death may happen in your 80s, or it may happen before this sermon is over. I'm, I'm not kidding. I, I went to, to lunch last month with a buddy of mine who's a pastor of a small church on the south side of Dallas. And he told me that that month, at the end of his sermon, they did an altar call, and the folks uh, came down to the front for prayer, and a 52-year-old man got up from the congregation, came down to the front, asked for prayer, had a massive heart attack, and died on the spot at the altar, at his church. This is a true story. And you know what that guy wasn't thinking when he woke up that Sunday? He wasn't thinking, I'm probably going to die in front of my church this morning. He probably wasn't thinking that, but he did die. There is toil in our health. Your life, guys, is impermanent. Your labor is impermanent. Even the memory of you will be impermanent. You hear me? I want to try an experiment. I don't know if, uh, if this is going to go well or not. Um, this experiment, uh, I think we're, we're going to do it for only 35-year-olds and down in the room. First off, show of hands. If you're 35 or younger, can you just throw your hand up so I can see? Okay, great. So there's a good number of you. Great. Uh, okay, so um, here's the game. Everybody older than 35, be quiet. Uh, uh, if you're 35 uh, or younger, in a minute, I'm going to throw up a picture on the screen. And all I want you to do, I don't want you to say anything. Nobody's saying anything. Nobody's whispering anything. All I want you to do is if you know the person on the screen, if you know their name and feel confident enough that you could say it out, all I want you to do is put your hand up, okay? That's all, that's all I'm asking. Don't say their name. Just put your hand up, okay? Let's show the picture. 
Hands up. Look around, everybody. Look around, everybody. Look around, everybody. Okay. That should make you sad. <laughs> that should make you sad. Okay, you can put your hands down. Thank you. I'm done shaming you now. Um, who's that? That's Gerald Ford. That's Gerald Ford. The 38th president of the United States of America, 1974, 1977. Literally, in the middle of the 70s, who's more famous than this man? Who's more well-known around the globe? This is the most famous man on earth one generation ago, and most of y'all had no clue who he was. Why? Because you don't remember grass. Grass doesn't get remembered. Even really special grass. It doesn't get remembered. And look, I'm just being real. Some of us, myself included, we, we get our eyes on the wrong thing, man. We're so desperate to make our stamp on the world and make a big splash in this life and get our name out there and get our brand out there and get our business out there. But this should tell you and this text should tell you that it, it doesn't matter how big you get. In a generation, you'll be forgotten. In a generation, you'll be forgotten. Let that inform what you involve yourself in, Christian. Let that inform how you navigate this life. So that's the reality of our impermanence. But now there's a big question we have to answer, right? And that question is this. Why? Why all this death and toil and, and trouble? Have you ever asked yourself the question, like, when life just seems so hard, that question just seems to come up, doesn't it? Why? When folks around us that we love get sick or die, it's why? Why did the tornado hit my house? Why, God? Well, Moses gives us our answer, and I just got to say, it's sobering. And so, before we keep going, I just, I need to say this. It's the reason I prayed how I prayed at the beginning of this message. It's going to take the Holy Spirit softening your heart right now to receive what the text is about to say. There is a 100% chance that without his help, you will become angry or bitter or frustrated and you'll want to fight this answer. And all that I'm asking, church, I love you guys. Listen, all I'm asking is that we deal with what the text says, okay? Can we come with that posture? Soft, and what does the text say? What's the cause of our impermanence? Verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence for all our days pass away under your wrath. In verses one through six, Moses takes his two fingers and he puts them on our neck 
to determine if we have a pulse. And he says, no, we're dead. And in verses seven and following, Moses does the autopsy to find out why we die. And the answer he gives is that our deaths and difficulties are an expression of God's wrath at sin. Why do you die? Why is there suffering and difficulty? It's an expression of God's wrath at sin. If you get this truth, it will change your life. It will change how you see the world. It will change how you interact with pain. It will produce wisdom in you, but it will not be an easy truth to embrace, especially if you've suffered massive losses. And so because of that, I want to deal with an objection right now because I'm sure that somebody who heard me is thinking about this wrong. I want to clarify as best I can so you understand what I'm saying and what I'm not, what the text is saying and what it's not. What I am not saying, what the text is not saying, is that the bad things that happen in your life are necessarily God punishing you for your specific sins that you did, right? Like you cheat on a test and you get in the car and drive home and you get a flat tire and that's somehow God punishing you for that, right? That's not what I'm saying. That's called karma, right? And it's unbiblical. It's, it's not biblical. There are plenty of wicked people in this life who have awesome stuff happen to them, right? And there are plenty of godly people who have terrible stuff happen to them. So that's not what I'm saying. This is not karma. What I am saying, please listen, I chose my words very carefully here. What I am saying is that all the death and all the brokenness and all the difficulty and toil that you experience exists because this earth is under God's judgment. That's why we experience these things. The curse God pronounced over mankind in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and fell and he cursed them, that curse, it touches the lives of every human being since. Unsaved or saved, it touches all their lives and it is meant by God as a reminder of our infinitely great offense of our rebellion against God. A rebellion that is still going on to this day. Do you feel that? That's what I'm saying. So, death, what is it? It's a curse. Frustration and futility in this life, what is it? It's a curse. Your impermanence is a curse. It's a curse. God is angry at our sin. And we don't talk like that in 2019. And we don't think like that. And you know what? The whole world throughout all time doesn't think like that. I know this because Moses tells us this 
in the next verse. Verse 11. He says, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? In other words, he's saying, No one thinks like this. No one sits and considers that maybe the things happening to them and the death that they're experiencing is a product of the expression of God's wrath in their life. Nobody's thinking like that. It's uncommon to do that. But it's true. Now before we go on, I want to make sure you see something. Uh, This is huge. Please don't miss this. What have we just learned over the past few minutes? We just learned two massive truths, right? We've learned the reality of our impermanence. We're here today, gone tomorrow, we die, quick, right? And we've learned the cause of our impermanence. That's an expression of God's wrath at sin, right? Those are the two things we've learned, the reality and the cause. Here's what we can't miss. The reason Moses teaches us both these things right here at the beginning of the psalm is because he's showing us how we get wisdom, right? Remember? Verse 12. And in order for us to get wisdom, he's saying we have to embrace both the reality and the cause. If you want to be a wise person, you have to grip on to both of them. That's what Moses means when he says, teach us to number our days. He's saying, help me see the reality and the cause at the same time. You have to accept your impermanence. And you also have to accept the reason for it. If you don't, you won't get wisdom, he says. Let me, let me show you what I mean. I want to explain this. See, if you, uh, if you refuse to acknowledge the reality of your impermanence, like you just, you, you refuse to even go there, that like you're a finite being, you're going to die, life has futility baked into it. If you refuse to go there, you won't ever be able to be wise. Why? Because you're rejecting reality, right? And people who reject reality can't be wise, right? I once saw a prosperity preacher on TV say this to his congregation, that the reason that they're getting older in his church is because they're not looking in the mirror and declaring themselves young. That's a person who's not grounded in reality, right? I'm not even trying to be funny. It's just true. You're not grounded in reality. Thinking that way makes you shallow, doesn't it? And unthoughtful. I'll tell you what it makes you. It makes you like a child not to grab onto this. Right? That's how children act, isn't it? Uh, they're, they're just not aware of the realities around them. Uh, parents, have you ever gone to a grocery store? You're walking with your kids. I've walked with my kids in a grocery store, and I'm literally watching them walk right into another human being and they're looking at them, and, and they hit them. How is that possible? Right? Because they're not thoughtful about the realities around them, right? They're not thoughtful about it. So if you don't hold on to the reality, you'll be like a child. But if you hold on to the reality, but don't hold on to the cause, namely God's anger at our sin, if you don't hold on to that, what happens then? What do you become? Well, you don't become like a child. You become a nihilist at that point. You become a nihilist. You know what that word means, nihilism? Nihilism is the belief that life is meaningless. There's no meaning to this life, and that's exactly what you'll become if you don't hold on to the cause. Now, why do I say that? Because 
you won't have a framework around your reality that infuses it with meaning, right? You'll have the reality, but you won't have a why to support that reality. And so all you'll be left with is a really sad reality that you're going to die and no meaning infused to it. And so you'll be left to conclude that, therefore, everything's pointless. What's the point? And so what happens then? You'll either despair, right, and get sorrowful, or you'll, you'll uh, medicate, you'll self-medicate, and you'll distract yourself with entertainment and all sorts of things to, to numb yourself from the meaninglessness of it all. But you see, those are your two choices, though. You'll either become like a child if you don't hold on to this, or you'll become like a nihilist if you don't hold on to this. But you won't be wise if you don't grab both. Do you see? Do you see it? Here's the point. The only way you'll really gain a heart of wisdom is to recognize both things at the same time, the reality and the cause. My death is inevitable, and it's because of my rebellion against the holy God, both at the same time. Only then will you have the wisdom to start looking for the proper cure. And that's where we're turning now, the cure for our impermanence. Now, what do I mean when I say that? Well, a wise person, right? A a person who sees both the reality and the cause, they know some things that other people don't know. They know they need help, and they know where to look for it. Do you see? They know who has the cure. That's what's making them wise. Moses demonstrates this for us in the whole back half of the psalm. Look with me at verse 14. So he said all that, everything we've just talked about, he said all that, and then we're here at verse 13, and he says this. Return, O Lord. Have pity on your servants. Notice, up to this point, the whole psalm has been a lament. He's grieving the reality and the cause, but then he shifts right here in the back half, and the whole back half of the psalm is nothing but requests made to God. And what's one of the first requests this wise man makes of his God here in verse 13? Return and have pity. He's looking at God and saying, I see both things, and I'm crying out for mercy in light of it. See that? He holds on to both, and it makes him run to God for his pity. When you realize that you have a problem and that your problem is God's judgment, only then can you really deal with the problem by appealing to the mercy of the judge. You see that? Now, uh, some of you might be thinking, and... and uh, it would be right for you to think this, um, that there's a flaw in my argument at this point. That maybe, maybe I don't have this straight. Um, you might be thinking something like, Jimmy, you, you just said that, that if our problem is judgment, then all we need to do is, is appeal to the judge, appeal to the mercy and the pity of the judge, and then he'll let the judgment pass, right? And we'll be okay. But Jimmy, that's not, that's not how judgment works right? That's not how judgment works, right? A a good judge has to uphold justice. 
Like, it would not be appropriate for a judge to pardon me just because he felt bad for me. Justice wouldn't have been served. He might have been coming off like a nice guy, but justice wouldn't have been dealt with. So why are you saying that, uh, that you can uh, just ask him for mercy and he'll let you off? That's not how the system works. You'd be right to think that. God can't just remove his wrath against sin. Otherwise, he'd be unjust, right? He would be an unjust judge. Someone has to absorb this wrath for it to go away. Welcome to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Welcome to the good news, guys. What Moses was longing for in Psalm 90, God in his pity and mercy delivered 1,500 years later in the person of Jesus. That's what he came to do to solve that problem. Listen to how the New Testament talks about it. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 We wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Romans 5.9 Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where's wisdom found? Where's it found? It's found in running to the wrath absorber to protect you from what you rightly deserve. That's where wisdom is found. You know, it's interesting. There's a there's a hint about this in this psalm. In this very psalm, Moses sneaks in a perfect picture of what Jesus came to do, and he did it right under our noses, right at the very beginning of the psalm, the very first verse. Look at it with me. Do you remember the beginning? It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Now, in the Hebrew, that word dwelling place could be translated that, or refuge. Now, what is a refuge? It's a safe haven, isn't it? It's a, it's a barricade that absorbs the onslaught of the enemy's attack so that the ones inside don't have to experience it. That's what a barricade does. So who is Jesus Christ? He is our barricade. He's our refuge. He is the dwelling place where we dwell. Christian, we run behind the walls of Jesus and his cross, and that cross absorbs the full weight of the wrath of God that is meant to be poured out on you, and you stay safe in the dwelling place. And a wise person runs to that refuge. And everyone who runs inside the refuge of Christ will, listen, never experience his wrath again. Everyone who runs inside the barricade will never experience wrath again. You, oh, you'll experience pain. 
and you'll experience suffering in your life and you're going to experience difficulty to the day you die and you will even die at the end if Jesus doesn't come back first, but it will not be wrath for you. It will not be wrath for you. This is what is so radically different about being a Christian. You look at a Christian's life, you look at a non-Christian's life, and you go, hey, it's kind of uh, split the difference. There's some ups there, some downs there. They're both struggling with things. They're both dealing with things. What's the difference? The difference is your suffering, Christian, is no longer an expression of God's wrath, but a channel for God's grace. That's what he turns your suffering into. In suffering as a Christian, God is doing something that he's not doing in the life of a non-believer. He's working that difficulty for your everlasting joy in him. That's what the Bible teaches us. Romans 8.28 tells us this, that God now works all things together for good to those who love God, right? That he's, that he's working all the things in your life, the good and the terrible, for your everlasting joy in him and to conform you into the image of Jesus so that you look more and more like him. That means there is no such thing as a wasted moment for you, Christian. There's no such thing as meaninglessness if you are in Christ. The worst day you will ever have is packed with meaning. You have to believe this if you're going to have freedom and joy. That's what the Christian message is. And listen, some of y'all are struggling right now. I know stories in this church, and I've heard stories this week that would make you weep of loss and death and suffering and sickness and cancer and loss, just so many things. Listen, there is not a single moment of those things that is futility for you if you're in Christ. It's not. Your toil is now being used like a tool in the hand of God to refine you and sharpen you and beautify you. And the lost world cannot say that about their suffering. And they cannot say that about their dying. And they cannot say that about their hurt. And to top it off, one day, death itself is going to work for your joy. In Christ, God is about to turn the thing that you used to fear most into a door to life. That's what he does. That is the beauty of the gospel. You don't have to fear death anymore. You don't have to. I'm not saying you're not going to die, but it's not terror for you because it's not wrath for you. It's a door for you. It's a door to life for you. It's a door to the thing your heart wants most in the world now. That's what it is. What a gift. Who in the world can say this but the saints? This is what God gives his people. You can say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You can say that with him because it will be gain for you. Where does wisdom start? It starts with running inside the barricade, running inside the refuge to the permanent one and having our permanence restored in him. He will set it all right and your life will be infused with the meaning that it was missing. Do you want that this morning?
I pray you do. Because that's what he's offering you in Jesus. Come, trust him. Lean on him. Flee wrath by fleeing to the barricade. Flee wrath by fleeing to the refuge and watch your life and your suffering and your death be transformed into something beautiful. Let's pray. Take a minute to ask God for grace. Those are heavy words and hard words, but they are words in the scripture that are life. Would you ask him for grace to help see and enjoy the truth that you just heard? If you heard this message as we're praying, if you've heard this message and you, you're hearing this and it almost like it's for the first time, you just never, you've never seen Christianity like that. You didn't know that's what Jesus has come to do for you, that, that you've been living under his wrath and it has been wrath for you and you want to flee that wrath and you realize that Jesus is that wrath absorber, that he is that refuge. And you've decided to, to run to him and trust him and cast your sins on him and get only forgiveness in return. If, if that's you for the first time today, uh, just with every head bowed, I, I would love it if you'd be willing to throw your hand in the air just so I could get eyes on you. Maybe look up at me and show me a hand if that's you. For the rest of you, we just want to plead that God would work this truth deeper down into our hearts. We want to be people who run to the barricade and who don't grow bitter or nihilistic or uh, childish. So God, will you make us none of those things, but will you make us like the wise man who built his house on the rock? God, will you make us like that man? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.